Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good evening. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and I'm here as normal with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Another guest today, looking forward to this chat, and of course, a lot happening in the industry, all on regulatory front, so let's, let's dive in. What a nice balance to the show. A little bit of regulation, but mostly real applications today. So our guest today is Miles Bradley. Miles, a very competent member of this industry, so looking forward to his comments in regards to the SEC and very keen to learn about your extraordinary project, Miles. Welcome along. Beautiful. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, obviously, being another Perth-based crypto enthusiasts it's great to yeah be able to get this a little bit outside of our little bubble here so yeah looking forward to touching on some cool subjects terrific so there's no question that if one was to have a elephant in the room it's it's the sec could i redefine them as more of a gorilla in the room than an elephant in the room and they sit in the corner of the room and they make angry sounds. And during that period of time, the industry just gets the hell on with what it's got to do and it continues to build. So as we know, during the week, the SEC had a ruling, a winning case against Binance and CZ. And they are also, per, also pursuing Kraken and they're pursuing Coinbase. They're pursuing the centralized exchanges in the US. And of recent times, one would argue with some with some success. So, so CZ pleaded guilty to violating the Bank Securities Act and causing financial institution to violate the BSA according to the various filings. His fine has been credited against what he already owes in the Commodities and, and Trading Exchange and that fine is $4.3 billion. And I, I enjoyed to hear that, that, that the Merrick Garland defined that as one of the largest fines. And according to all my research, it's the largest fine by a quantum jump that they've done. And he refused to suggest it was the largest fine <laughs> yeah. by a quantum jump to suggest that maybe he's sort of singling out the industry. But what's extraordinary is that when you read through the details of this, it talks about you know, the fact that Binance employees knew and discussed the company was serving thousands of users in sanctioned countries, and they knew that facilitating transactions between the US and users in sanctioned countries would be in violation of US law, but they did it anyway. What's intriguing is that all of these transactions are viewable. They're all able to be seen, and so therefore the SEC would have seen all these transactions. None of them they have deemed to be illicit transactions. They've simply done the business in these particular areas and they've broken the regulations. So understand, inappropriate, and there needs to be pursuit against it. But it would seem to me that singling out, you know, the quantum of, of, this, of this is sort of in keeping with the SEC's modus operandi. 
But they're not singled out, are they, Nitin? They're, they're, they're one of a number of exchanges the SEC is pursuing. Yeah. No, no. So, so one thing, I, and, and uh, in in preparation for this, Tarek, we talked about the word. At least they're consistent. SEC has consistently now with Coinbase in the past and Kraken now, and again Bitrix, which has finally shut down its operation because of the cost of compliance, and of course now with you know with 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 Binance, there is a little subtle difference though. I think there was a DOJ, which is Department of Justice, uh, pursuing action against Binance for BSA. So again, it's it's less about the blockchain-based transaction, Derek. I think there was some legitimacy to, to this where they were pursuing the element around bypassing some of the regulatory requirements. So BSA, the, the Banking Secrecy Act, requires you to do and report and collect information about its participants. And in many cases, I think the documents they've collected, they were not just only an unregistered exchange, which is a SEC domain, but they were actually transferring funds without any appropriate licensing, which is money transfer licensing in the US. Mm. But also as a part of that licensing apparatus, they're required to maintain KYC information, they're required to maintain sanction information, do sanctions checks. And that's a common procedure in every country that is governed by the global banking sort of agreed upon rules dictated by various global bodies like FATF and so on and so forth. So this is much bigger than SEC, I think. Uh, in, implication on just a unregistered security exchange, which is what they've done with Kraken, or labeling certain tokens as securities. So I think in this case, it's CFTC for operating a sort of unregistered commodities exchange. It is Department of Justice going after criminal charges. It is Department of Treasury. So there's a whole combinatorial element of various alphabet soup of government agencies which is quite big. And this has been actually, we've been hearing about this for over two years. So they've been collecting a lot of evidence and documents around this, both internal communication with Binance, but also external tracking and tracing of movement of funds. But I would say this, Derek, that to me, some of these things are, I've taken this in positive light even though I think that some of them are, again, post FTX fallout, it's important that they make a statement to stay compliant if they choose to you know, operate in the US and they're cognizant, especially in context of Kraken or context of Bitrex, that US is the only regulation in the US and they don't necessarily govern the world. And that is something which they have even looked into Binance. So they only have zeroed in on the US individuals in on and business on US soil. They haven't really gone after the Binance presence that's globally uh, omnipresent in, in, in most countries, which I think is, is quite significant from that perspective. But I think some of these bad actors, and now we have some precedence in terms of how you operate a business, which to me is important and which to me lays foundation for ETF approvals, stable coins, because the next business is that whether it's Coinbase extending its its reach or having new businesses will come up with a lot more clarity in their operating model per se. So I'll pause here to see. And of course, Miles, please opine because you're on the thick of it, especially with your project. Tell us more about your project in transitioning from the hot news of this week to you have a token, I believe, and, and give us some more insight on how do you view these actions in context of your business? Yeah, yeah. So look, I think it's good and bad. I think we've obviously got to take 
both sides in that there's centralized actions and decentralized actions. So Envision, we're a, a Web3 stock media marketplace. So we're a non-custodial decentralized application that allows content creators like photographers and videographers to upload and license the use of their work directly to the end user. So you can think about us like a Shutterstock or a Getty Images cross with a, an OpenSea. So I guess for us, some of the, the bigger implications that are starting to come out is is what the future looks like for, for DeFi or for decentralized applications, what our sort of requirements are in terms of KYC, KYB. Look, I think from a, a centralized solution such as Binance, I think those the gray areas are a lot clearer. I think CZ kind of said, look, it's better to ask for permit for forgiveness and than permission. So he came out with that as a statement, you know, described the area as a bit of a, a gray zone. So I think, look, there's no disputing that he knew that he was kind of flirting yeah. with the edge of yeah. what was legal and what wasn't. I think he was probably very prepared to deal with the consequences, which we've now seen what those consequences are. And I think, yeah, you kind of once you, you kind of get to a size where you're too big, these kind of you know, actions to move really fast, push into new jurisdictions, create new products gets a lot harder. And I think we've seen that with some of the statements from, from Coinbase as well. They've gone the very opposite route to be as, you know, compliant as they could possibly be. And as a result, they've certainly lost volume, lost users. They haven't been able to build and scale products as fast as what they would have liked. So I think for them, it's catch 22. But I think what's going to be really interesting to come from this is, is how the SEC kind of looks and wants to regulate DeFi applications. So CZ as well has, has kind of come out and said that now him stepping back is going to allow him to focus more on DeFi and decentralized, truly decentralized products. So look, I, I think overall for us Envision as a business and as the space as a whole, I think this is probably a positive thing. I think obviously the, the market kind of agrees there hasn't been a catastrophic sell-off like what there has been previously whenever there's been some pretty historic news. So yeah, look, I, I kind of see it as a positive. I think a lot of Agreed. these kind of actions, to be honest, like we probably knew deep down that some of this was going on. And I think there wouldn't be that many exchanges that, that don't have some area of flirting with the line. So look, I, I think it was kind of just um, a matter yeah. of when, not if. And yeah, he's, he's obviously, um, happy to to take the consequences and yeah we'll, we'll see what the future kind of look like um i think yeah centralized we've seen in australia now there's um been a push um some new laws are going to be coming into place for centralized um exchanges where they have to be a lot more transparent and i think they'll be more in line with how say a, a publicly listed business or anyone who deals with registered or financial products the way that they're registered. I think that's great for the space. I think anything that, you know, pre prevents another FTX from happening is, is fantastic for the space. But yeah, I think we'll, we'll see what this sort of outcome leads to in terms of yeah. us as Envision and uh, being a decentralized product. And I, I completely agree, Miles. I think if you look at the Kraken lawsuit, and again, it was not just SEC in case of Binance. It was a combination of DOJ and the U.S. Treasury and CFTC, there were like a whole... It's just about every whole, one possible. Every, every, <laughs> every, and banking and, and all kinds of regulatory elements in this. But what's interesting about Kraken's use case is they haven't been sued for wrongdoing or they haven't been sued for misappropriation of funds, which was the case with FTX. They've been, however, taken to court 
and the lawsuit dictates commingling of funds, which is a huge issue, both in terms of prudential treatment of assets by a centralized agency. But the assets that were listed as securities, so Cardano, Algorand, Matic, which is Polygon. Uh, what's interesting is, as you pointed out, Miles, that, and it's astute observation that we haven't had a massive sell-off. Both, yeah. there is some, but it's not a massive sell-off. Mm. In fact, all these listed securities in context of Kraken have preserved their raise that we have seen, the, the, the value appreciation that we've seen in the last month. And I think that's an indication that market do care about technical capabilities, the application, and less about regulatory sort of rubric. That's one of the lenses that you go and measure. So I think that's, to me, that's interesting, I think. Very much so. And it's interesting to see that. Yeah, look, I think the, the kind total of discussion market... around, yeah, go sorry, on, I, was, I was just going to say, look, I, I think kind of the, the topic around what's a security, what isn't a security in the SEC's eyes is, is a bit of an old topic. I think we've seen Coinbase pushing this for a very, very long period of time. So, yeah, I, look, I, I think in terms of retail and the general public, I think they're a little bit bored of that narrative. I think, look, you, you can't paint them all with the same brush. Every token does slightly different things, has slightly different characteristics. The smart contracts are built in a different way. They function in different, every single element of them is different. Um, and they can change as well. Projects can launch a token and it might have absolutely no use case whatsoever. Could, so it could be seen as a financial product, but then as soon as there is a use case, well then it could flip into being say a commodity or a utility style product. So look, I, I think, that element of it is is a little bit old news, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see what, what you guys are going to think of that as well. Mm. All right. Well, let's move on. As we've always said, we've been commenting on regulations for months now, and the extraordinarily fascinating and joyful thing <laughs> in this industry is actually seeing the revolution of the technology itself and how progressive and at the same time disruptive it can be. And I think all of us that have been involved with business have at one stage or other bought images from Getty. And Getty is the dominant owner of images in this marketplace and very much the Web2 domain. In other words, centralized, owned by a large organization and sets the price. One of the things about Web2 centralized environments is that once they become mammoth, they're very hard to dethrone. You either have an enormous amount of money to be able to do it or new technology comes along. And I've known you for a while, Miles. I don't think you've got an enormous amount of money, but you've got some new technology coming along. So maybe let's deep dive into what a vision is actually doing and, and let people go to the site, have a look at it, play with it, engage with it, and, and talk about what you envision this future to be. No pun yeah. intended. <laughs> no, I try and throw the word out as many times as I can. <laughs> I'll kind of subconsciously throw it out and be like, oh. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So, look, I don't have a background that's creative. I was working in, in finance in London and I kind of went down the, the blockchain digital asset rabbit hole sort of around 2017, probably with a lot of other people that was looking to push out on the investment risk curve started understanding a little bit about what distributed ledger technology actually was, how it could be used and how it could revolutionize certain industries. And yeah, it wasn't until sort of 2020, 2021, 
one of my long-term friends called me and was a little bit frustrated with some of the solutions that he was using to, to sell his stock media. So he was a professional videographer. He'd go out and do work with, say, the Tourism Board of Australia. He'd come back and he'd have hundreds of little clips that he wouldn't use in his project that he could then go and distribute and, and sell. And he was doing that via Getty Images and Shutterstock. And he found time and time again, the way that the, the ownership structure was that he had to hand over copyright of his, his IP. So essentially Getty and Shutterstock would then have control. He'd sign a distribution agreement with them. Basically, they kind of dictated the terms. And what he found was he was receiving anywhere from sort of 10 to 20% of the revenue that his content would wow. end up selling for. So kind of, yeah, was a little bit frustrated that he was the one doing all the work and then receiving yeah, pittance. So mm. it was kind of around the time when NFTs were taking off and more from a collectible standpoint, but we kind of thought, look, maybe there's a way there. All Getty and Shutterstock are doing is they're essentially taking ownership from the creator. They're then distributing and signing license agreements with the end user, taking the funds and then giving a little bit back. Why can't a smart contract do that exact function? So yeah, fast forward uh, a couple of years, we've gone through, raised some cash, spent that cash in, in building the product, and we're now on uh, Testnet. So yeah, very simply how it works, if you're a, a photographer or videographer, even now as we push in and see a lot of AI-generated content, you can also <coughs> create AI content. You can upload, you turn that into an NFT, which essentially like, creates a, a copyright or ownership agreement, which says that me as the creator, owns the distribution rights and the copyright of this content. A consumer can then come along, looks and feels just like you're on Getty or Shutterstock. You can yeah. scroll through any of the photos or videos that you want to find, add them to your cart, and then you hit checkout. When you're checkout, if you're buying a royalty-free license, which is the most common form of license, essentially it means that you can use that photo or video or asset however way you want to use it, whether you want to put it into your film or documentary or on a billboard for, for marketing, you can use that, but you don't actually own the copyright. You can't mm. distribute it yourself. So when they go to checkout, purchasing a royalty-free license, a new NFT gets created with the license agreement attached to it. It's put onto the blockchain. All the metadata is pushed there via our smart contracts. And it essentially says that you as the consumer has the rights to be able to use this underlying asset, which is owned by this person. Smart Contracts deducts the funds, sends the funds directly to the seller. And Envision, we just kind of sit as a, the software provider. We don't own any of the assets. We don't exchange any of the funds. The Smart Contracts do that whole process, just like most other Web3 solutions. So yeah, kind of the way that I see Web3 is, is it's really about ownership and custody. I think yeah. the biggest issue with Getty and Shutterstock is that they take ownership and when they take ownership, they take control. So we're allowing the content creators to retain ownership, retain control, distribute however they want to distribute, control their pricing. We'll do all that we can by giving them insights to make them more efficient in doing that. Um, yeah. We can also scrape a, a lot of data and give them that data to make them more efficient. Whereas a lot of the other Web2 solutions actually use that data to profit themselves. And as you mentioned, you know, Getty Images and Shutterstock are publicly listed businesses. So as soon as you're a publicly listed business, your number one driver is to return shareholder value. So sure. we've found time and time again that they're squeezing the creator. Shutterstock just completely changed 
kind of their their payout method and has now got tiers where every year your tier resets depending on how much you sell so there's i think off the back of that there was thousands of creators who basically up and up and left that platform so look we're, we're seeing a, a strong push away from the shutterstocks and gettys but then the solution if someone leaves those platforms and they're trying to do it themselves it's really yep. hard to get a big audience so we give creators the platform and the audience but still allow them to to have complete control and ownership so yeah kind of flipping the ownership model on on its head but still giving people the access and exposure that they kind of need to be successful in the industry so so that's brilliant miles help me understand this right because Web3, uh, I've written about this, is creator-led economy, which is giving the controls both in terms of the data that you create, including the data that you generate, right? This is our healthcare information and your driver's license and you, be, you're, you have now the ability to monetize it. So is Envision an exchange which allows me to be able to market my product and you provide sort of the buyer and seller and you facilitate the transaction? And of course, there's a small little fee structure that goes into it. Is Is that the model you're going after or... Are you also into enforcement? And that is, to me, a bigger challenge to say that if I'm using an image and somebody copies it, because these images are digital in nature, they can be replicated. And because you're storing them on your AWS or any of the cloud providers, you certainly have some risk of saying that if it's an image, I can use the image. And if the image is in a billboard, it's fine. But that image could be emailed like a billion times. At that point, do you track that violation? Is there a tracking mechanism? Or is the utility of smart contracts purely a handshake of an agreement of like Creative Commons to say, I have I paid for this so I can use it? It is, yeah. So it, it kind of it, a whole, pretty much all of that. So oh, yeah, wow. we, we, do, we do function. Our smart contracts essentially allow the content creator to market and sell their work directly to the end user, making our yep. smart contracts a marketplace, just like kind of OpenSea. But then you're dead right. There's a, a lot of issues around copyright infringement. There are now dedicated third-party solutions that basically go out and track that. So we're going to be doing all that we can to prevent content from being listed on our platform where that individual doesn't own the copyright. That yeah. That's a lot easier for us using you know, reverse image search, but I think we're still bound by the legal framework that's in place around copyright and IP. And and there are obviously still a lot of challenges with that. We're looking at some solutions which might help. There's a a protocol that we're speaking with that essentially the second you click your button to take a photo, whether it's on your phone or your camera, an NFT is created, metadata is attached to that NFT. So from the point of creation, there's trackability using blockchain. But obviously in the real world, there's a few issues around that. A lot of stock media is sold as post-production. So it goes through grading, filtering, editing. And a lot of time when you're using a lot of those products, a lot of that information gets scratched. So there are definitely still a lot of those complications that we're kind of unavoidable (laughs) to some degree. I think, look, another thing we're thinking about ways whether we set up a a DAO, ultimately where we want to get to is to have an ecosystem or a you know a community that is the ones that decide everything to do with the platform we want to create a dow fund where that dow fund can be used to you know take legal action in the real world and that can be decided on by the community so that that's where we're looking to get to in the interim look i mean even it's an issue with with getty and shutterstock 
I know sure. a lot of people that, you know, if, if there's a photo on a website and they haven't purchased the rights to be able to use that, they might get a polite email, but actually enforcing that is pretty challenging. The biggest issue really comes around when someone's distributing content that they don't have the rights to. Um, Correct. That's when there seems to be a lot more. And, of an and issue. so you have a pricing tier for just acquiring the image versus distribution of the image, for example, and you have different pricing tiers for that. And, and a follow on, uh, Miles, is you said you're not processing payments on your platform and, and love to understand a bit more on, on that. And, and second thing is a follow on to that question is an economic model. And an economic model is something I focus on because let's say Smug Mug or YouTube, the footprint of storage is a challenge. And even though storage has become uh, a race to the bottom in terms of cost, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper every day. Yeah. There is still a longevity to it. You're supposed yeah. to now, you're paying every month and it's a reoccurring cost. I'd yeah. love to understand how do you all thread that together to have a sustainable business model, which I think most Web3 projects have amazing intentions, but lack that sustainability in terms of constant. Because at the end of the day, we all want to make money because making that money keeps us interested, keeps the business running, so yeah. to speak, right? Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, no, definitely. Look, I think it's, it's a bit of an interesting one with decentralized applications because as a, a software creator, we kind of want to be removed from the software that we're creating, given that we want it to be open source, decentralized. But obviously, as you mentioned, there are overheads and costs associated with powering a lot of that solution, especially when you're quite a data intensive product like we are with video content. We know that, yeah, our data footprint is, is going to be significant. So look, we, we need to have a model which is sustainable. So basically, look, our, our smart contracts facilitate the exchange of payments. So if you're a buyer, you'll send funds straight to the seller and that price is set by the seller. We then take a percentage of that value directly from the buyer. So on chain from that transaction hash, you would see that there's funds going from the buyer to the seller and funds going from the buyer to Envision. And those funds are what is used to cover our overheads. We have a couple of other revenue streams. One of them is a, a fiat on-ramp through our platform. So we have a, a partnership. Through that partnership, we allow anyone to purchase digital assets and onboard from fiat currency. And we take a, a fee from that as well. So we try and promote people to onboard um, or use our on-ramp within our own platform. We obviously generate revenue from that. Plus, we're also working on a couple of premium products and very simply, they'll be accessible via the subscription and or by staking our token. So, you know, a couple of them, as you mentioned, we're now sort of a, a data generating entity that we can provide that data for value. One of them is very simply creating a, a dashboard where we can provide insights that makes the creator say more efficient, what things are being searched that doesn't currently exist on the platform, for example, that might completely change the way that a creator creates their content. They might be thinking, I'm going to go and take some ocean photos today, but they get a notification saying, oh, actually there's no flowers, no flower photos that are currently listed. And this is something that's really hotly searched for. So they could maybe go and create content of that. So making them, more efficient. So yeah, a few different revenue streams. I think we wanted to diversify our revenue streams as much as possible, but I think 
it's it's going to be something that we're going to have to be a little bit dynamic on, I think, to see what our future data footprint looks like and what the overheads are associated with that. We're going to have to obviously make sure that, that we're sustainable. And look, being a, a two-sided marketplace, there is sort of that economies of scale function that, you know, especially to start with, to get that snowball really rolling is a lot harder. And that's why you've kind of found that it is there is a bit of a barrier to entry. For a lot of stock media marketplaces, they'll either work very directly with, with brands and agencies, so they'll act more like a, a broker rather than just an open marketplace. But I think what, what we're really wanting to promote is the fact that the creators are the champions of, of our platform or of their own content. So we, we've been speaking and working with a lot of creators. They're really passionate about it. They're, you know, they're wanting to champion the platform. They're wanting to get out and share and be vocal and bring people to our platform because if they're bringing people to the platform, it's more likely that their content's going to get viewed and, and potentially get purchased. So in terms of distribution and getting to scale, that's where I think we've got a bit of an advantage as opposed to a Getty and Shutterstock, where they're the ones that are really having to bash down the doors and, and make the noise themselves. So a huge chunk of their spend is actually just on marketing. So I think, yeah, that's where the, the sort of business models change massively. And what kind of makes us, based off our forecasts, gives us the ability to, to not need to take anywhere near the percentage that, that the Shutterstocks and Gettys charge. And we're also seeing you know, the Web 3.0 model in play that way because the community itself is self-perpetuating. The community itself grows the product, grows the passion, grows the interest. And what you've done very creatively there is you've turned around and said to the community, we're even going to tell you everything that's happening, what the demand curve is, what people are chasing, what they're looking for, etc., so that the community can feed into that. It's such a different model to the model of centralised broking. And, and I think it's an extraordinarily clever and well-considered product. I've looked at the Envisage test site and, and so certainly share with our listeners what that's like. It's a beautiful looking site. Maybe share with our listeners what the experience of the incoming you know, buyer of the token is going to be and what the experience of the seller is going to be so if we can get a final view of what Envisage will do. Yeah, so currently we're on the testnet environment, so anyone can go and have a look. Our website is envisionstock.io. You'll find all the links, including the testnet link there. So the, the process is, is very different for buyers and for sellers. So look, we kind of, going back, not, not to harm on it too much, but we, we've kind of predicted from day one that the space is going to develop massively in terms of the regulation and the requirements for KYC, KYB. We've been very much on the, the front foot that there's going to be certain requirements, even for decentralized solutions, to have some element of idea of who is using their platform and what their transactions are. Even though I guess for us, we're relatively low risk in that the majority of content that will sell on our platform is fairly low value. So in terms of being used for money laundering or t terrorism financing, we're fairly low on the risk. But look, ultimately, from a, a creator's perspective, you provide us with very basic information on if you're a business, what the business is, where it's registered. We can then go and make sure and do some, some KYC, KYB, that you're not on any lists, that there aren't any red flags. So we outsource that KYC, KYB, same as if, if you're an individual. Very simply, you can upload 
photos or videos. There's a few different ways you can do that straight from a, a Google Drive or other cloud-based solutions and or just upload direct from your computer. You then add various informations. We've got AI tagging, so AI will cleverly go and work out if there's an ocean, it will attach the ocean tag. If there's the sun, it will attach the sun tag. So it goes and does a lot of that heavy lifting for you. Right. And then you literally control the pricing. You say whether you want to sell the royalty-free license and or the exclusive license. So something that we allow our creators to do is actually sell the outright copyright or IP rights to someone else. So there's a number of reasons that someone might want to purchase exclusively, whether they want to use it exclusively. If you're an Apple, for example, you don't want anyone else using an image for your iOS and or there might be people that want to actually come and purchase content to then distribute it and earn passive income themselves. So you have to select that. You then click Mint NFT and then Mark for Sale and that's done. On the consumer side, it's a lot easier. Literally provide a, an email address, a password, connect your wallet, search for whatever content you want to search, add it to cart, click checkout. So our token is the only form of payment on the platform. So if you're wanting to purchase content, you use our token. Currently we're on Ethereum. The testnet's running on Mumbai testnet. The mainnet platform will be on the Polygon um, blockchain and we'll be bridging our Ethereum-based token across to Polygon shortly. So the fees and anything associated with interacting with the Polygon will be a lot less. Yeah, very simply, just like buying any other ERC-20 token, you can buy that. We're listed on Centralized Exchange or on Uniswap, swap into our token, and then you can purchase content. So we've, we've also, within our smart contracts, the content seller will control the price in US dollars to begin with at least. I think that's probably the, the smartest solution to price your content in. Our smart contracts pull the, the live price of our token against the US dollar. So at the point of purchase, you're paying a US dollar value that's known and the creator receives that. So if you're, let's say, a, a film or documentary producer and you need a two second yeah. clip and it's say $500, you're paying 500 US dollars worth and you just need to acquire 500 US dollars worth of our token so that there's no sort of volatility risk there. So yeah, that, that's pretty much it. We don't, we're not going to be asking for any KYC, KYB information from a, from a buyer, at least having some protections on one side. We've got some idea of who our users are and we kind of hope that we won't need to do any more than that. I think fortunately for us, you know, we're, we're not like a Uniswap where there's going to be, you know, billions of transactions of micro scale. I think, yeah, it's for us to be able to monitor, monitor that information is a little bit easier. So yeah, that's something that look, we're, we're kind of keeping our ear to the floor on what those yeah. progressions are. Uh, I'm very confident there's going to be some element of requirement for, for DeFi sort of platforms to have some idea of transaction monitoring or KYC, KYB. Unfortunately, I think, yeah, the, the decentralized utopia that um, a lot of us sort of big fans of distributed ledger technology probably isn't going to play out. I think, especially as we see central bank digital currencies get, get rolled out and the ability for the government to have even more idea of who you are and more control. I think, yeah, that the chance of us being able to freely move our assets around and trace yeah. is probably numbered. So, yeah. So, so just to follow on to that, Miles, by the way, this is, this is brilliant and intriguing. We could talk for hours on this. You mentioned NFT and you mentioned 
testnet and you also mentioned asset do you view your nft as digital rights management see which is simple access that because i have this nft it gives me rights to this particular image or do you see nfts in in your network as an avenue and you also use the word staking do you see it as an internal sort of currency of sorts that allows the tokenomics to work which is between the creators of this images and the platform operators and the various economic actors or players uh, how do you view that and the, and the reason i'm asking this is we've spent a lot of time on tokenomics for various projects and tokenomics is also towards sustainability of the business model of many networks yeah. not to mention the fact that how the way you define a token eventually will morph into it's either a commodity or a security or a payment instrument or some sort of a, a token that gives you access rights which is neither of the uh, the three regulated asset classes that we that we discussed earlier so love to get your sort of thinking around that because and it's, it's all yeah. emerging too I, I don't think i don't expect anyone to have all the answers but at least there's some rubric that you probably yeah, follow yeah, yeah. to say this is what you want to do with this token yeah so look i think our nfts purely act as a vehicle for issuing legally binding contracts there's, there's no real value attached to the underlying NFT token itself. Purely, it's attached to the, the text that is imprinted in that. And when someone signs a transaction and that NFT is generated with the license agreement or the, the ownership and copyright rights, that's as, as far as it goes. There's, there's no value attached to the actual NFT. If you send that NFT to someone else, there's no value in it popping up on a secondary marketplace. It's yeah, they, they really function purely just as a vehicle for exchanging legal rights. Nothing more in, in our case. So yeah, look, our, our ERC 20 token, we see purely acting as a, a utility token. So we're obviously trying our best to build as much utility into that token. So yeah, look, as I mentioned, being able to stake our token unlocks access to premium products. Um, we're not getting interested in um, stake our token to earn 10,000 APY. Look, I think it's been done to death. That's not a sustainable model. Yeah, we really want to build as much utility into our token. So being the sole source of payment, being able to access products with it, eventually we'll see how DAOs and governance around utility tokens kind of works. But that's another thing that, that we would love to kind of look at, being able to have voting rights or decision-making ability for the platform by owning or retaining tokens is definitely something that, that we're keen to look at. So yeah, for us, I think our NFTs function very differently to what most people would associate an NFT with. I think we're starting to see use cases for NFTs kind of such as ours really develop. I think, you know, whether it's to prove property rights or, you know, being, being used in yeah, various just blockchain versions of something to provide, you know, more transparent proof of ownership. I think we're seeing that really scale out. And I think that's ultimately the way that it kind of functions for us. So we, we don't see our NFTs as being a fun, it's not a financial product. It's not a potential security. There's no underlying value to it whatsoever. And we, we, we've built some permissions into the smart contract, which prevents. So if you purchase a royalty free license, that royalty free NFT, is can never leave that wallet it can be burnt but it can never be transferred it can never be taken and listed on a, another secondary marketplace 
So the functionality of it really is very, very limited. Yeah, it purely just says that that, that purchaser has the rights or that person that minted that has the rights to either use this asset or distribute this asset. It's as simple as that, really. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Miles, thank you so much for introducing Envision to us. It's so good to share with the audience back to the roots of extraordinary projects that are getting created in a space and getting created from the area of youth, enthusiasm, small creations. I mean, these aren't $50 million budget development programs that are making products that could be really disruptive to some of the larger players in the industry, but for the purposes of enhancing the community's engagement and also for enhancing the creator which is what NFTs are all about. Quite brilliant how you built your NFT not on the transfer of the image, but on the transfer of the legal rights that you've done here. So for the people interested in learning more about this or connecting with you, so certainly go to envisagestock.io and see this site. And right at the moment, by the way, for those that wonder about how beautiful Western Australia is, there's a lot of West Australian images on it at the moment. <laughs> Great images of rock yes, nest. It's, it's Great one of images of, of one, of, one of the perks of having co-founders that are professional videographers and, and graphic designers is you can create some pretty impressive assets. <laughs> that's it. The assets are impressive. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And, and so, I'm so visit Western Australia briefly on the envisagestock.io site and enjoy the space that we live. And so thank you very much indeed. We, we are going to enjoy your company with Blockchain Breakfast along the way and keep understanding how Envision Stock grows. It's a, it's a classic, classic Web 3.0 kind of product where, where community is engaged and, and we love that. And what a joy it is to be able to start talking about these kind of projects along the way versus just that of regulation. Thank you so much, Miles. Thank you so much, Nitin, like normal. <laughs> That's true. Miles, thanks again. It was, it, was a great, it was a pleasure talking to you and learning about Envision. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity to get out and yeah, inform, hopefully, some people on yeah, the real-world use cases of blockchain. It's not just an investment. There are real-life applications for what blockchain yeah. can be used for. And yeah, stock media just yeah. happens to be one of those. Good on you. Fantastic. Alrighty then. Bye for now. Yeah, cool. All Thanks, right. Guys. Bye guys.